This is Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. You think those aspiring performers in a chorus line had a tough time? Just think about today's job market for musicians. Orchestras across the country have suffered bankruptcies, strikes, and lockouts. Audiences are graying, and even big institutions here in New York have seen ticket sales slide. But you wouldn't know there was any problem by looking at the number of young people entering university music schools and conservatories. Music degree programs actually grew by 15% over the last decade. So is it time for music schools to take a harder look at whether their training addresses the realities of today's marketplace? Today, three views on this from industry leaders who are trying to shake things up. Here in the studio, Richard Kessler, dean of the Manus College, the new school for music in New York, and Elizabeth Sobel, the president and CEO of Universal Classics, which is partnering with the University of Miami on a new music training program. On the phone is David Cutler, author of the book The Savvy Musician. He also teaches music entrepreneurship at the University of South Carolina. Richard, I'm going to start with you. A study by Indiana University in 2010 found that just about half of music conservatory alumni are doing work somewhat or closely related to their training, but only 19% of them spend a majority of their work time as musicians. What is Manus doing to address the tough job market out there and maybe bring those numbers up? We've rethought our curriculum. We essentially asked ourselves two questions. One is, what do our graduates need to know and be able to do today in 2014? We then answered that question. We looked through our curriculum at what we provided and what we didn't provide. We started changing and eliminating some things we taught for many, many years. Such as? Such as the, the percentage of theory and ear training. We reduced some of that. We took a look at some of the history courses. We took a look at some of the ensemble courses. Um, We started making changes. We also started bringing in many things when we started taking a look at the kinds of language uh, and communication skills that you need to have in terms of the ability to communicate verbally, to communicate in writing, to write press releases, to understand how to do program notes, your blogs. We took a look at the issue of having technology literacy to understand the ways in which the marketplace works and how you can find your way through that. So we started requiring entrepreneurship classes for everyone, not an opt-in, but for everyone. We're asking students to learn how to improvise. We're asking students to learn how to compose. These are performing students. And we're also beginning to partner with the larger university we're part of, the new school. By eliminating some of the history and theory, are you not eliminating what musicians need as background for their training? Well, I think there's always questions of how you can teach more efficiently. There's always the questions of exactly how much what might have been relevant in 1890 or in 1990 might not be as relevant today. So everything can be improved and things can be more efficient. And in fact, sometimes you can combine things. I think it's one of the wonderful things about being in higher education, that if you're really committed to learning, that you can assess these programs, no matter how traditional, no matter how long-standing, and in some cases, no matter how revered. And in higher ed, you should be able to look at these programs and ask yourselves, how should it change today? What do we do well? What don't we do well? And also, how do we make room for other things in the curriculum that we haven't taught before? Now, it sounds really easy. I can tell you that it's kind of a big mess, um, and it takes a long time to get these things organized, but I, I believe we're well on our way. Elizabeth, you're with Universal, the biggest record company in the world. Why did you decide you wanted to partner with the Frost School of Music at the University of Miami? 
Well, certainly to um, help address absolutely every um, every point that Richard just mentioned, those are all critical points in trying to transform the way musicians are taught to prepare them to, for a, not only a new but a constantly changing landscape, I think is absolutely critical. But I think it's not just about like raising that 19% to a higher level. I think that there are three things that we want to be doing, not only helping the serious music student who wants to be a professional musician have be more equipped to go out into the world and into that job market, but also helping try to create the next generation of entrepreneurs in our business, because that is, to me, that is probably a bigger problem that we have right now, that we're not training the next generation of industry impresarios and industry business leaders, because they may have a passion for music, but they haven't been taught entrepreneurial skills. Um, so it, that's a very, very big part of what I'm concerned about. And then there's a third area, which is, you know, what's the matter with uh, equipping people to walk out of a conservatory environment and just be incredibly highly operating individuals in whatever sphere of life they choose who happen to be passionate advocates for classical music. We need all three of those things to be happening. And I think that kind of approach to curriculum is absolutely essential. So I think a lot of people are doing the same thing in different places. And the more we can all connect, it'll be better for... The record industry, the recording industry, has not had an easy time of it in the last few years. What is it that you have to teach students? Well, first of all, I would just say that our new mantra at the label, I, I don't know if you know, I, I came only 11 months ago to Universal after 30 years, almost 30 years at IMG Artists, which is the premier classical music agency. You know, I feel like not only I, I bring a different perspective to the record business that has to do with live performance, but to me, part of what needs to be taught is how recorded music and live music need to be and can be more integrated into an artist's approach, both from an artistic point of view, an entrepreneurial and business point of view, and actually integrating those two worlds on a business level to help make our whole industry more robust. They've tended to operate in very distinct and, and distant silos. David, you just heard what both Elizabeth and Richard had to say what do you think most traditional music schools today are not teaching that they should be? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that there's some good news here and that a lot of schools are looking at this problem and are changing their model to include more 21st century skills. So I've been focused not so much on what we're not doing as what we could be doing in the future and what we can start easily as Richard mentioned, curricular reform takes a lot of time and energy. So one of the things I've been exploring is what can we do within the curriculum that's already in place that will teach some of these leadership and entrepreneurial skills. So an example of this might be the traditional degree recital. Most undergraduates are required to do, uh, if they're performance majors, to offer a final recital in which there would be a few requirements. They should play extremely well in a predetermined hall, and often there are certain literature requirements for this. So it really sends a message to students that success in music results when you play a generic program at a given location very well. And of course, we all know that it takes a lot more than that. So it's interesting to think about, well, what is the opportunity in this uh, requirement that already happens. For example, if it's important for us to attract new audiences, maybe we could use this as a playground for 
doing actually that. So perhaps part of the recital requirement might be you need to get 200 people there to get an A on this part of it and 150 people there to get a B or something like this. Or it could be a forum for learning about innovative event design or putting up a website and marketing to greater society. So I think it's very interesting to look at what we already have and see how we can reframe those experiences. Boy, I love that. I'll give you another example. It's great to be on this panel, first of all. Um, we, we have something coming online this fall, and it's going to be, I think, a little bit controversial, but it's an option in chamber music. So it's an, the option is to be in an entrepreneurship ensemble. Now, let's say if you want to be in a string quartet and have a standard sort of uh, curriculum related to string quartet study, you could do that, or wind quintet or brass quintet. But if you choose one of the entrepreneurship ensembles, interesting, you'll receive 40% less coaching. You'll have 60% of the coaching. This is where it gets a little controversial. And what we're doing is we're taking the 40% that we've removed and we're creating banked time with a group of consultants, a type of project-based consultant entrepreneurship, good producers, a consultant in graphic design, a consultant in PR. And ultimately what happens is very similar to what we just heard. The charge is not only learning a piece or a number of pieces, but finding the place to play it, creating the program, getting out a press release, basically finding a way to get the word out and get the students thinking about what the challenges will be that they will face in the real world as early as possible. Elizabeth, this must sound very familiar to no, you as somebody I, coming from the world of arts. I management. mean, it's, it's, it's sounding really incredible. And for me to, um, you know, with the Frost School, I might say that, you know, one of the things that we're asking ourselves, and before we even announced this initiative, we had been doing a lot of work on this, is that, you know, in addition to asking all of those questions, should we also be asking the question, which is a big part of what we're doing, what is the current concert experience? Should it be the concert? I mean, right now we know that a lot of people are gravitating away from the traditional concert hall experience for a lot of reasons, you know. And um, and I think that the classical music business has tended to take a kind of dualistic point of view. It's like you either believe in the Carnegie Hall experience with shushing ushers and, you know, quiet, restricted behavior, or you're the kind of person who wants to go to, a, you know, an out to Central Park with your picnic and a bottle of wine. And we keep saying, like, why does it have to be either or? And and I sometimes feel we're living in a world right now. I, I do happen to read Norman Lebrecht's blog. It's I, I told Norman recently I felt his blog was like a motorcycle accident. I really did not want to look, but I absolutely do it every day. <laughs> you know, but one of the things that when I read the comments, which I really ought not do – I sometimes feel like we're living in a world of that there's a tea party of classical music and that there's a lit litmus test of based on purity of content and execution. And if there's anything that I believe destroys the spirit of classical music, it's that kind of thinking. And I'd, I'd like to see us take that approach to classical music because I, I actually my residence is in Miami Beach. And so I, I'm there's so much going on there that's, you know, vibrant, in the, whether it's Young Arts or MTT and New World or the Frost School of Music. But um, I think that the new Frank Gehry building and their sort of indoor-outdoor experience, you can buy a ticket and go in and have the traditional classical music concert hall experience, or you can sit outside and watch in real time the same performance projected on the wall of that gorgeous building and sit in one of the most beautiful urban parks around. 
so and have whichever mean, experience have which, feels valid to exactly. you. Exactly. And so does it mean that people outside are lesser human beings or lesser fans of classical music? Absolutely not. There should be a place at the table for them all. And I think one of our tasks going forward is providing these experiences, which are not, you know, for the true uh, connoisseur, they should have the opportunity to go and listen in a quiet, concentrated environment. But if you're not that kind of person, if you don't provide for a listening experience for them, you will lose them. And that's what's been happening over the last decade. I love all of this. Uh, At the University of South Carolina, we're actually throwing a chamber music competition. And part of the goal of this is to really advance chamber music in this country. There, uh, it's called the Savvy Musician in Action Chamber Music Competition, and actually the deadline is this Friday to apply. There are two requirements for this. The first one is we're looking for groups that feature artistic excellence, and of course there are many, many ensembles like that. And the second is that there should be something innovative about their event design. Uh, I'm sure everyone listening to this loves the music-only concert, but we're trying to encourage uh, a generation of musicians uh, that will go beyond that and really think about the holistic concert experience. If I may, I just I wanted to, to just sort of say something in, with regard to all of this, which is that all of us at this table and maybe on this conversation, because I can't see you there in, in <laughs> South Carolina, but I suspect we're all relatively of the same generation. Um, and I, one of the things that I, I, I learned having gone to, to, you know, starting to sit with these students in Miami and we started talking about the concert experience and, you know, how many concerts do you go to a week or a month or whatever? Where do you go? And they really weren't going to, to concert halls, but they, as entrepreneurs and musicians, were creating events in bars or people's homes or I mean there's so many examples of these sorts of more organic experiences that were in much more intimate uh, environments and not I'm not talking about a bar because people want to make a lot of noise and drink their beer and eat their nachos no they want a more intimate experience both sonically and personally and so I think Which is a have, throwback to the days of chamber music exactly, when your music was actually dinner entertained. Totally. And I think and even it even uh, one of the one of the students who make a made a big point of this also said to me looking me straight in the in the eye and said, "I must tell you I have the same issue with Deutsche Grammophon recordings." which feel distant to me as an 18-year-old listener. They want to hear the music compressed and right in their ears that the the, the traditional beautiful you know, recorded sound that we all adore on Deutsche Grammophon and all the other great classical recordings, it's not appealing to them. I think if we don't all, as industry leaders, get with this, you know, these changes and find ways to adapt without compromising the music, by the way, that we will be missing a big boat. So marketing and PR are very different skill sets from music artistry. What do you do with, and there must still be young singers, young instrumentalists who have no aptitude for marketing or PR. They just want to make music. Do you not accept them in the first place? Of course we accept them. I think that at the end of the day, the talent will out. You know, Obviously, as, as a label executive and before that as a manager, the ideal situation is to find an artist who has both. You know, I had the great privilege to work for many, many years with Joshua Bell, who every time I heard him in performance, I thought, this can't get better. It was so transformative. And every time he walked out on stage, it was extraordinary. 
And yet he also was a great citizen of the world. And But there are also those artists who are just sort of quiet geniuses in their little box. True. And what do you do about the quiet genius in the little box? Then the quiet genius in the little box needs more care and feeding and the right partnership with the right managers and the right record executives. Do they still have to study entrepreneurship? Do they still have to study marketing PR I mean, if it's I, something they are well, completely I, not good I, at? You know, I think, I think it's important actually, at least for me, to um, put on the table – the perspective I have about entrepreneurship, I do think that if you teach marketing and PR, it's problematic. If you look at it from a sort of a, just a very purely instrumental, no pun intended, standpoint. And that's where a lot of people get tripped up on this, the sort of idea, well, we're going to take time away for the students to be doing PR and they won't be practicing and learning how to market themselves. They'll have nothing to market. I was going to ask that. What, what do your big name teachers yeah, think but, about well, this? Well, some of them struggle with it. Some of them get it because they have to do it in their own careers and haven't yet made the connection between their own artistic practice and what they need to do in their teaching studio. But what I, for me, the issue of entrepreneurship sort of comes down to a few fundamental questions, which lead to the desire to want to be able to learn how to do a press release better or learn how to market. It sort of, for me, is like this. How do you take the thing you love the most, your art form? How do you find a place in the world to perform it with people? How do you find the resources to do it? How do you make the world a better place? And how do you make a living doing it? And what happens is, I think, the sooner you get people thinking that way, they begin to see the instrumental pieces as being important. But if you start with the press release, it sort of comes from left field and seems like something that is a dilution. But there's a more fundamental question we're asking about what it is to be a practicing artist, what it takes to be a practicing artist, and what it's all about. I couldn't agree more that the first battle, which has largely been fought and won, is should we even address these skills? Is it enough to just create great artists, or do we need to go further than that? And I think in most cases, most professors and most, fa- uh, most schools agree, yes, we do. So the question then becomes, what steps should we take? And an answer that emerges a lot of the time is, I know we'll, we'll really focus on creating a website or on making a nice-looking resume. And, and those things are important. I mean, why wouldn't you want a good resume? But those things also do not make a successful musician or an entrepreneur. And the much more difficult questions are larger ones, such as where will the new opportunities come from and how can we get there? The idea of unleashing the imagination and then developing a process of getting from point A to point B. We hear this saying a lot, you know, you you really need to treat your music uh, like a business or you need to treat your art like a business. But I often encourage the opposite process. Well, you know, what if you try to treat your business like an art form, that you care for your career and and you work on your career as lovingly and as passionately as you do a piece of Chopin? Bravo. I mentioned the Joshua Bell piece, but I was going to end by saying, but I also worked for an artist, you know, like Yevgeny Kissin, who was the complete opposite. And I think what's really important to understand is at the end of the day, the most critical thing is the music making. So what kind of hands-on stuff does Universal hope to be giving the students? Well, I mean, certainly on the the, the purely business side of, you know, this is also an era, obviously, that where the focus of what uh, the younger generation are doing is not reinterpreting the classical canon, but actually creating new music, which I think is one of the most 
healthy and, and promising things about the, the future of, of classical music. So if you're creating new music, all sorts of issues about protecting IP come up and how to, you know, IP intellectual, intellectual property. property. I mean, these sorts of issues, contractual issues, how that plays out with regard to publishing. I mean, even today, like I, I can't tell you how many classical artists I work with, uh, both in, when I was in management now at the label, who have been in this for quite a while, who still don't understand what a publishing company does and what the benefit, you know, what the pros and cons are of being with a publisher. These are just... You do that as well at Universal. Yes. I mean, we there is a big, you know, publishing, Universal Publishing is, is a big part of the company. But whether they come to Universal or not, I encourage these artists to go sit with an attorney or someone who can tell them. to. Uh, they need to understand what the implications are rather than blindly signing a deal that either commits them or rejects the idea of being with a publisher. If they're at the point where they're signing with a major label, they really ought to understand the implications of, let's say, publishing, and there are many other implications. Richard Elizabeth just mentioned creating new music, and your program is going to put a new emphasis on composition and improvisation. Is there really a job market for more composers? It's not so much a question of more composers. I think you have to look back to pre-20th century. If you look back before the 20th century, what you see is the performer was a composer, the performer was a conductor. Think of all the composers you love, all the great composers across time, Bach, Chopin, Mozart, Liszt. Beethoven, even people, conductors like Bruno Walter, you know, they all composed. But what happened in the 20th century is composition became ghettoized, composition became specialized. It did no great favor to music doing that. Um, and what we are seeing more and more, I think, with the younger generations is you see more string quartets where a couple of the members of the string quartets also compose. You see that the younger generation artists are, in fact, returning this practice. They know the artists of their time, the composers of their time. They commission, I think, more than ever. So what we want to do, essentially, is besides building opportunities for composers in discrete ways and connecting them to the performers, we want all performers to study some composition. We want to bring performance practice closer to creative. We want to see more performers um, live in that duality, become composers and performers. We want to see the composer side by side with the performer to actually put creative music making at the center of the school. And, it's and, and, and having improvisation or composition is not just about this historical precedent or, or about <coughs> developing this other very specific skill. Creativity is transferable. And when students are empowered by understanding, I am good enough, I am worthy of making my own musical decisions, they might then be compelled to believe I am worthy of making my own business and career decisions. Yeah, I, I, love, I love all of that. And I think that um, in addition to these skills, business skills, the other emphasis that we will have on, on, at Universal U is really also just providing thinkers, writers, you know, people who can challenge and deepen just the, the sort of the intellectual curiosity of the students, because that's one of the things that tends to cut off with kind of the conservatory thing. You get into a, a silo, you're so focused on what happens in the, the practice room, you're a little afraid to step out and take that time doing these other explorations. And the most the thing that can be the worst thing for a performing musician who gets so caught in the day-to-day -day touring schedule is to lose intellectual curiosity. Because if you don't continue to develop as a person, which then affects your development as a musician, you will cease to become interesting 
to the audiences out there. And um, I would imagine that that point of view is appealing to the University of Miami and to the new school in their mission as liberal arts institutions yes. rather than the mindset of the conservatory. It's, you know, being a conservatory, a hundred-year-old conservatory in a university, it is a challenge because there is a sort of dynamic tension between the conservatory model and the larger university, which is, includes liberal arts, includes a design school, jazz drama, includes a PhD program at the New School for Social Research. There's a dynamic tension there. And I think that it's interesting because I think the tension is broader than this. Recent studies have shown us that the arts education economy in the arts dwarfs that of the actual professional organizations, the cultural organizations, the industries, the traditional industries. There's more money being generated in the economy related to arts education at K-12 in informal and at higher ed than in all the orchestras, all the opera companies, all the record companies combined. And what that means is there are opportunities for the artist to be performing and also working as a teaching artist. But if you don't bring these, the world of the teaching artist into the conservatory, if you don't hope to develop opportunities for the students to understand and see the landscape, essentially what you're doing is you're shortchanging the student by not preparing them for the world that they'll, they'll enter. Is it easy to balance all these things? Absolutely not. Is it a sort of challenge? And many people question whether you should bring them in, whether it will dilute the artistic training. You have that debate all the time, but that should not stop us from basically saying the world the students will enter is the world that we have to help our students understand now, the minute they get to the conservatory. I think there's so many, you know, this happened when I was, uh, you know, in management and an artist would go and, you know, the audience, there wasn't much of an audience and, you know, there starts to be, oh, the presenter, they don't know what they're doing or certainly with the label, all oh, the labels don't know what they're doing. They didn't sell and they don't realize how hard it really is. And to how get butts in seats. To get butts in seats. And they don't realize that, you know, a record company is not there to help provide your recorded legacy, of, you know. And the record company is only as good as the, as the artist is. When, when we're really successful with an album, we're successful because there's a partnership between the label and the artist. And there's constant dialogue and constant energy between the two. And so... Having artists learn those lessons or, or kids or whatever, students learn those lessons early on that you that it has to be a partnership, that they have to take responsibility, whether they're doing the entrepreneurial stuff themselves or if they're partnering with somebody. They ha The more transparency the, there is and the more knowledge they have about how the world really works, the better off they're going to be. Thank you all very thank, much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. This has been Conducting Business. Our guests were Manus Dean, Richard Kessler, Universal Classics President and CEO Elizabeth Sobel, and David Cutler, author of The Savvy Musician. You can subscribe to Conducting Business on iTunes. Brian Wise is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.